Father, we pray indeed that you would open our eyes, help us to see truth about Jesus here in these words, and help us to see what truth they give us in our lives today as we seek to follow Jesus, as we seek to trust him, as we seek to live for him in the week ahead and in the whole of our lives. May you teach us now by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 15 on page 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. 
So how confident do you feel this evening that God loves you? I guess there might be different answers to that question around the room. Among Christians, at least, the idea that God loves us is not exactly new news. You know, we just, well, God is love. That's the kind of thing we talk about. And beyond that, you know, what is the message that the lost world needs to hear? Surely it is that God loves them, that his love is unconditional. It doesn't depend on anything we do. He just loves us, whoever we are, whatever we've done, no matter how we live. That is the gospel, some people would say. Maybe we, we would say that. But here's the thing, it's not at all clear in the West in the 21st century that the idea that God loves us unconditionally is actually really exciting to hear or new news. Do we really need this God in the sky to tell us that he loves us? You know, we can do that perfectly well for each other, can't we? Without needing further affirmation from him. After all, you know, we're basically good people. And frankly, it's a whole lot more straightforward to carry on without him. So let's just do love without God. And that, in many ways, is where our culture has got to. And the news that God loves us unconditionally is at best irrelevant and at worst suspicious. There must be a catch. Like the universities who've been called out this week for making unconditional offers to students before they've done their A-levels. Because... It is suspected they just want their fees. So maybe we should dig a little deeper with this statement that God loves us unconditionally because we might still want to say that we believe that's true. So what do we mean when we say that, that God loves us unconditionally? How do we know that that's true? How do we know that he loves us today? How do we know that he will love us tomorrow or in five years or in 50 years? Because here's the thing, although we live in a world that says human beings are basically good and if there is a God, he absolutely ought to love us, well, again, dig a little bit deeper, and actually we'll find plenty of evidence to challenge that widely held assumption. So a week ago, it was Holocaust Memorial Day, which is a stark reminder that with the increasing atheism of the 20th century, that didn't bring freedom and utopia, but it brought mass murder and genocide and uh, things like that, of which the, the Nazi concentration camps were just one example. And one of the most chilling things about the Holocaust is the architects' plans that were drawn up for the gas chambers. Plans that were created by middle-class architects and engineers and even doctors who signed off on the plans in such a way that it's very, very difficult to claim they would have had no idea what their plans were going to be used for. <coughs> the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn spent eight years in the Soviet gulag prison camps where it's estimated more than a million people died. And following that experience, he wrote in a book that he wrote called The Gulag Archipelago, he wrote this. He said, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? 
Do you see what he's saying? We're each capable of the greatest good and beauty and creativity and joy, but also the deepest evil and ugliest acts. You can't just take the evil people in the world and separate them out and get rid of them, and then everything that left is, is good. If you do that, you'll be getting rid of every human being. We may not be party to mass murder, but which of us would be happy for the darkest thoughts of our hearts to be revealed even to those we are closest to, let alone the wider world? So then, what does it mean to say that God unconditionally loves human beings who are like that, human beings who are like us? Can it really be true? Well, the story of Abraham in Genesis is about these issues. We've seen over the last few weeks how the big question in Genesis is, how will God redeem the world following the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden? And the problem is that the descendants of Adam are in Adam. He's the head of our family, and we reject the God who made us just like he did. And in the life of of Abraham, uh, we see a new start for human beings, a new set of promises to Abraham and, and through Abraham to save the world. And yet, we've seen over the last few weeks that when it comes to faithfulness, well, Abraham is flawed. He is flawed just like us. If God's plans are going to depend on human obedience, there's no guarantee at all that such obedience is possible. And thus far, the emphasis has been on Abraham's faith, and it's been tested we've seen haven't we if you've been here he's had a test of famine a test of plenty and our conclusion might be well it's all very well when Abraham gets it right and it's all very well when we get it right as it were but what about when we don't when we doubt that God's promises are real when we doubt that our sins can be forgiven when we doubt that God is really there when we look back on a day or on a week and we think well that was so selfish the way I behaved the way I spoke to my spouse, to my housemates, to my children. I I was gutless in that conversation with my colleague, where really I could easily have brought my Christian faith into what we were talking about, but I chose to say silent. And then there are those intruding thoughts and attitudes that I'm pretty sure no one else knows about, but God does. Can God forgive me? Can he use me? Does he really want someone like me in his kingdom? Does he actually love me? Will he keep his promises? Well, in these verses in chapter 15, we start to see an answer to these questions. And the answer is, yes, God does keep his promises. We've seen the promises God made to Abraham in chapter 12 of descendants, of land, of blessing. And the New Testament, as we've heard already this evening, tells us that we are the inheritors of those promises through Jesus, who is Abraham's offspring. But God doesn't just tell us he will keep his promises. He doesn't just sort of declare that that's true. He doesn't just say that he loves us despite our sin. He does more than that. And we're going to see what he does to show that we can believe this, that he loves unconditionally. What does that mean? Well, let's see, first of all then, from verses 1 to 6, our fearful weakness cannot stop God from keeping his promises. Our fearful weakness cannot stop God from keeping his promises. So do you remember what happened if you were here before, or listen online if you didn't hear? Uh, Abraham has just secured an extraordinary victory with 318 men against the mighty king Cadalioma and his 
allies. And he has demonstrated great faithfulness by his dealings with the king of Sodom, who tried to buy him effectively. And Abraham wants to be faithful to God, so he says no to that offer. But then, beginning of chapter 15, Abraham has has this crisis of confidence. So, verse 1, look at that again. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham, and he says, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, if you just notice there, there's a little footnote. It says B next to reward. You look down the bottom of the page, it gives you an alternative way of translating that phrase. And actually, that's a better way of doing it. Your reward will be very great. Your reward will be very great. And we'll see why in a second. Faith often gives way very quickly to fear. You know, things things may have been going well, but maybe too well. Maybe something bad is about to happen. How will I cope if the news at work or at the hospital is not good? And God now is speaking words of reassurance to Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. So Abraham comes back. Well, you speak of this reward that will be very great, Lord. But look, these promises that you've made are basically about me being the father of a great nation. But Sarai and I are very old. And we know that, don't we? She's been labelled as barren from even before God made these promises. We heard in the New Testament reading, Abraham at this point is 100 years old. And, and you can do the calculations. That means Sarai is 90. And right now, Eliezer of Damascus stands to inherit the estate. Now, we don't know who this chap is, Eliezer. But verse 3 suggests... Uh, he's a servant of some kind in, in Abraham's household. And the point is, well, surely, surely all these amazing promises, it can't be all going to come true with Eliezer, surely. That's, that, you know, that can't be the one through whom God is going to fulfill his promises. So what does God do? He repeats and he spells out further his promise. It's been getting more and more specific through these chapters. About the, you know, He's been saying more Um, particular things about the land, about who will inherit it. And now God is saying it's not just a relative, it's not just a servant from his household. What does he say? He says it's a son from your own body. And that, frankly, is ridiculous. You know, who could bring about the birth of a child to an old barren woman and her husband? And so God takes him outside and he says, look at the stars and count them. Now, it doesn't work for us to do that in London, does it? And it doesn't really work anywhere in Britain at all because you can't ever get away far enough from, um, uh, from a city. But, you know, maybe you have been somewhere really remote, hundreds of miles away from any other source of light and seen what is really out there in the night sky. Well, I tell you what, you can go to Greenwich to the observatory, can't you? And they'll show you. But what do you see? There's uncountably many stars Bright ones, dim ones, and then that's, you know, they merge into a kind of mist of stars, millions and billions of light years away in the universe. So shall your offspring be. Are you for real? Abraham might have said. What a crazy thing to say. And as I've been studying these verses this week, I realised something that I don't think I'd consciously thought about before, which is always brilliant, isn't it, when you're reading the Bible and you, you see something like that. And it, it's, it's easy to read verse 5, 
as if God is just repeating what he said in verse 4, but making it bigger. So you're going to have a child, and the response comes back, well, don't be ridiculous, that's not going to happen. So it's just repeated in a bigger way. You're going to have millions of children. But actually, this isn't just reasserting a crazy promise. You know, it's not like if I, if I said to you, I'm going to give you a house. You say, well, Tom, I don't think you've got a house to give me, but okay, we'll see. And then I say, no, 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 come with me, and we're going to go to the Bishop's Avenue. And I'm going to give you one of those massive mansions with, with a porch with the biggest fake Greek columns you've ever seen. Now, that's totally ridiculous, isn't it? Unless it turns out I actually own the entire street and all its houses. I don't, by the way, but it makes all the difference, doesn't it? When God tells you to look at the stars and count them. That's not the same as me taking you outside and saying, look at the stars and count them. When God tells you to look at the stars and count them, he made the stars. He knows how many stars there are. He knows the answer to that question that we can't even begin to answer. He knows how old they are. He knows the chemical formulae of their gases. And we know that from Genesis chapter 1, don't we, where there's a throwaway line, little verse. He also made the stars. So this isn't just a flowery way of giving a big number. This is a demonstration of his power to do what he says he can do. Because he made those millions of stars. He made them. So if he says, so shall your offspring be, if he says, you, old man Abraham and old old woman Sarah, you, you are going to have a baby, well, you can believe it. Because he did it with the stars, so he can do this. So if he says, you who struggle to believe, you who struggle to live consistently as a Christian, you who fear as much as you have faith, you whose faith is weak, not strong, if he says, you are included in my promises too, you can believe it. So Abraham did. He believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And this verse is where Paul goes in the New Testament to show that justification by faith is not a new thing after Jesus has come, but it's the way God has always related to his people. And we heard that in the first reading from Romans. Justification means being declared right with God. So it's like in a court of law, you're up before the judge and a record of what you've done is read out and the evidence is examined and the verdict is reached and it's not guilty in the right. And that is what verse 6 says happens to Abraham. Flawed Abraham, with all his sin and mistakes and fear and weakness, he believes what God says, he trusts him and God says, you are right with me. This gets us right to the heart of the way God consistently relates to his people throughout the Bible. You see, being right with him is not earned by merit, but it's given as a gift. 
and received by faith. Righteousness is credited to Abraham, which means it's not intrinsically true of him. He's not acted in the right way. He's not earned God's favour. In the courtroom, he ought to be found guilty, but God acts towards him as if he is in the right, as if he is right with God. You are right with me, he says. And so Paul said in the first reading we heard from Romans chapter 4, in verse 23, he says, commenting on this verse, he says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The 18th century preacher Charles Simeon called this the hinge upon which the whole of Christianity turns. And it's the beginning of our answer to our question about the sense in which God loves us unconditionally. Because he counts us righteous when we are not. He gives us the gift of being right with him. He imputes it to us, we sometimes call it. So that when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the perfect life that Christ lived. Now you might say, well, is it, is it unconditional? Because don't you have to believe? And that's true. He believed the Lord and it was credited to to him as righteousness. But the key thing to understand is that believing God's promise doesn't mean that we merit forgiveness. God didn't credit righteousness to Abraham because his faith deserved it. It is simply the means by which we receive what he offers us. It's an empty hand, not a hand full of deeds done and merit earned. So it's like, imagine, I hope this has never happened to anyone, but imagine you've been, you're shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean and you're drowning. It's just it's terrible. It's chaos. You're about to, to go down and the rescue helicopter comes and they winch down a guy with a life ring to rescue you. And all you have to do is put out your hand and he will grab you and pull you out of the ocean to safety. Now at the press conference afterwards, where is the focus after this amazing rescue? Is it on you with your empty hand? Well, you know, if it hadn't been for me reaching up, the rescuer wouldn't have been able to grab me at all. Well, of course not. The focus is entirely on the helicopter finding you in the middle of that ocean. What are, what are, what are the chances of that? But they found you before you went under. And on the guy on the rope who comes down. And of course, your empty hand is just the way that you receive what the rescue that you are being offered. That is faith. That is how Abraham was counted right with God when he wasn't. And it's the same for us. So have you trusted in God's promises like Abraham? This isn't something we do automatically. We're not born trusting God. We need to understand that we are weak and fearful. We are full of sin and brokenness. We have nothing to offer God to earn his forgiveness. But he offers to count us right with him when we are not. So believe what he offers and trust him. You could do that today if you've never done it before. But it does raise a further question. How can this be right? How can this be just? How can God be right to say that we're right when we're wrong? In other words, how can it be just for him to credit righteousness to Abraham and to us, not because 
we deserve it, but simply through believing what he says. Isn't that a basic miscarriage of justice, if this is how God relates to sinners? You know, if that, was, if that courtroom was a human courtroom with a human judge, and the person has clearly done all the things that the evidence says they've done, but the judge says they're not guilty, that would be ridiculous. That would be a miscarriage of justice. It wouldn't be right. How can it be right for God to do that? Well, that takes us to the second half of the passage. So let's look at that. So verses 17, verses 7 to 21, our covenant-breaking sin cannot stop God from keeping his promises. Our covenant-breaking sin cannot stop God from keeping his promises. What happens next follows a very similar pattern to the first six verses. There's a statement from God. He's restating, if you look, verse 7, uh, his promise of the land. And then a question from Abraham. But how can I know this for sure? And then a sign and a promise follow. And it's the other way around from verses 1 to 6 where we had a promise, then a sign. Now it's a sign, then a promise. And this time the sign takes the form of a covenant. Now covenants are really important in the Bible, but they're often ignored. The point of a covenant is to be a solemn promise between two parties which entails commitments and obligations on both sides. So the best human example of that is probably marriage. But most marriage covenants, most weddings, don't involve cutting animals in half and walking between them, do they? You probably get blood on the dress, that wouldn't be very good. But that is what happens here. A heifer, which is a young female cow, and a goat and a ram, they all get cut in two. Now, the birds don't get cut in half, presumably because they're too small. But this is what God tells Abraham to do, and he follows his instructions precisely. Now, I guess we read this and we think this is a bit, you know, reminds us maybe of a Damien Hurst art installation or something like that. But this is how you did covenants in those days. And there may well have been some kind of covenant between the kings that we met last week in chapter 14. This is the kind of thing they would have had going on between them. And generally the point was that the dominant king would tell the lesser king to get the animals in place and then the lesser king would be told to walk through the middle of all these animal parts that have been laid out. And what's the point? The point is, you keep your end of the deal, matey, or look what will happen to you. You can read an example of this at the end of Jeremiah chapter 34, if you're interested, where it refers to this kind of practice. So, if the animals then stand for Abraham's people, then verse 11, the birds of prey come down on them. That presumably implies some kind of ominous threat to the people which is chased away. And think about what that could be in the life of Uh, God's people that will will come about afterwards? What would the the original readers about to enter the promised land, what would they have thought as a threat to God's people? Well, presumably something to do with going to Egypt. Well, that's that's borne out as we press pause while Abraham falls asleep and God speaks to him again. Look at the promise. There's going to be some slavery in Egypt and there's going to be a rescue. Life is going to get difficult before it gets better, but the ending is good. And then verse 17, back to the animals. What we would expect now is for Abraham to be told to walk between the pieces. I'm going to give you this land, Abraham, but in return, you and your descendants jolly well need to smarten up your act. 
and live an obedient life or else look at what will happen to you. But is that what happened? No, a, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now what's going on? Well, remember the first readers of this were Israelites about to enter the promised land. They knew what smoke and light were about. So they would have thought of the top of Mount Sinai as Moses received the Ten Commandments. Loads of smoke and light as that happened. Or they would have thought of wandering through the desert. Do you remember how they were led? By a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was God himself leading his people. So what's going on here? This is God himself walking through the animals. Now do you see the significance of this? See, this isn't how covenants work. It's not meant to be like this. The, the guy with the power and the authority, he's not the one who walks through the animal parts. It's not on him to keep the deal. But that's exactly what God does. What is he saying? He's saying, I will take the consequences of your covenant-breaking sin on myself. When you sin, when you break this covenant, I will die. Well, how can God die? That's ridiculous. Well, only by becoming a man, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus, fully God and fully perfect man. In the end, this is what it takes for God to keep his promises. He takes the consequences of our covenant-breaking sin on himself. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? It is, in the end, the offspring of Abraham who takes the consequences because Jesus is a son of Abraham, but it is God himself who's come into the world to do that. So how can it be right for God to say we are right when we're wrong? Only because he takes the consequences on himself at the cross. That is the price of him keeping his promises, but it's a price he's willing to pay and that has been paid in full. So when we talk about the unconditional love of God, that is what we mean. Not that we are lovely, not that we are lovable. No, we're broken, we're fallen. The line between good and evil runs down the middle of each of us. But he loves us nevertheless. And how can we know he will continue to love us in that way no matter what? No matter how we mess up and struggle to trust and act selfishly and fail to speak up for Jesus and fail to care for the lost. How can we know he will love us? Well, because of this covenant. This is how we know God's love for us today will continue tomorrow, not because of anything in us, but because he made a solemn promise to Abraham and he walked between the animal parts. And then Jesus went to the cross. We call this the covenant of grace because our salvation that is promised in this covenant is entirely free. No cost to us, and yet it costs God, his son, if we're trusting in Jesus today, this is our story. We are children of Abraham. We are included in this same covenant. In the face of our fearful weakness and our covenant-breaking sin, we only need 
to believe his promises and he will credit righteousness to us. We need only cast ourselves on the grace of Abraham's covenant-keeping offspring, Jesus, and we will find intimacy with him that we were created for. If you've not yet put your trust in Jesus like Abraham trusted God, well, what is stopping you from doing so? Look at the stars, God said to Abraham. I made those millions of stars. I have the power to keep my promises. You can trust me. And look at the cross. In the face of our brokenness and sin, God's response is not to wait for us to sort our act out, to get ourselves together, to prove we're good enough to deserve his love. No, he takes the consequences on himself as God the Son becomes a man and dies for sinners so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we can know then that when suffering comes and life is tough, the covenant will not be broken. He will take us through those times into eternity with him. We can know there is a God we can trust with the big things, the small things, the tough decisions, the times when it's costly to go his way because he's committed himself to us. So today, believe his promises. That's all he asks to do with empty hands. Believe his promises afresh or believe them even for the first time, and know the assurance of him declaring, you are right with me. Let me pray. Father, we marvel at your grace that you've shown us in this covenant. We thank you that you declare us right with you when we simply believe in your promises with empty hands. You declare us right with you even though we continue to sin. Because our covenant-breaking sin cannot break that covenant because you walked between the animal parts. You went to the cross in the person of your son. And so our life with you is secure and eternal. We praise you for that confidence and assurance we can have. Please would you help us today to have that assurance that comes from simply trusting in these promises. And may we then joyfully go, not our way, but your way, because of how you have accepted us and already counted us righteous. In your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.